We're actually coming to the last of the passages of the letter that Peter wrote to the churches of Asia Minor. And and he writes to them speaking about how to deal with, how to grow through and grow in the sufferings that they are experiencing and that they will be experiencing. And we look at how God's grace is at work even here in this last of these teachings. We'll look at that closing of the letter next week. But even here in the last of these teachings, that God's grace is at work giving us God's perspective. Giving us God's perspective. Now, there's photos that I'm always fascinated uh, to see that people have taken in which someone looks larger than life. You know, this is, there's no photoshopping going on in these pictures. Somebody looks larger than life. Somebody looks smaller than they should be. Well, obviously what's going on is the one that looks larger than life is simply closer to the camera. They're simply closer. What's closer seems bigger. And keeping things uh, correctly understood is a matter of perspective. I actually saw another funny picture, and it was, it was on the lawn in front of the Leaning Tower of Pisa here, and it was like all these different people scattered around the lawn that were like leaning in certain ways or, you know, stuff like that, trying to get, as, as their friends are taking pictures of them with the, but if you're at a different perspective, it looks like, what is that person doing? Because it's all a matter of perspective. Well, we look here this morning at how God's grace is at work giving us God's perspective. And whatever it is, you know, like, like this hand that seems like it's about to crush the Eiffel Tower. Whatever it is that you're going through. We need to keep perspective in mind, even if it be in faith. Just taking in faith. When we think, but it's big. Well, guess what? God is bigger. It seems like it's lasting forever. God is eternal. It's frustrating. He's all knowing. It's scary. He's good. He's trustworthy. But it's so close. He's closer. He is closer than even what just seems like you can't get away from. We need God's grace at work, giving us God's perspective in what we are going through. And the prescription of what brings this type of grace is a humble heart. Remember what we learned from? Remember what we focused on this morning? God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that's what leads into verse 6 of chapter 5, 1 Peter 5. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on Him 
because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. We look here this morning at, at, at really, like I said, this is, this is the Apostle Peter's final teachings in this first letter to these churches around Asia Minor that he is aware that they are about to go through increasing suffering, increasing persecution. And and we look at how it is that God's grace is at work changing our perspective, giving us God's perspective. And the first way that that affects us, and it should affect you, and I challenge you here this morning, be looking to God with humility. The perspective that you should have as you are looking to God should be with humility. This is what he says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. This term, humble, he is saying, be humbled. It's in the passive voice, okay? Verbs can be in an active voice. That means the subject is doing the action. There's a middle voice, which we won't get into. But they they can be in the passive voice in which the subject is being acted upon. And here, you are called to be humbled. Allow God to humble you under his mighty hand. Or as Kenneth Weiss says, the humbling process which God was using was the persecution and suffering through which these Christians were passing. Jesus himself told us in Luke 14, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. And we've looked at how that's true in a salvation relationship with God. A person that says, I don't need grace, they are going to be humbled eternally. A person that says, I need God's grace, will be exalted into his presence for eternity. And Jesus modeled a a living humbly, as we're described to in Philippians 2, Verse 8, that being found in human form, it isn't isn't just that Jesus being God took on human form. It says being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He is our example of this type of humility of this perspective of looking to God with humility. And looking to God with humility means surrendering yourself to Him. The result then, 
that we are told is that God exalts his humble children at what he calls the proper time. One writer says, God never exalts anyone until that person is ready for it. First the cross, then the crown. First the sufferings, then the glory. And this is different than the command that we've seen over and over again to be subject. All right? To put yourself under, to allow yourself to be put under. That's, we, we saw the command to be subject to human government, to be subject to your boss, to be subject to your elders, your shepherds. That is to intentionally, voluntarily come under someone's authority. And that's coming under someone's authority that's no more valuable than you are. But here, we are called to be humbled, to recognize that we belong under God's authority. He is not our equal. And the motivation here is that ultimately, we will be exalted. But I will tell you, anyone who has a relationship with God through Christ, all they're going to care about, all we're going to care about is having seats at God's banquet table, being in his presence for eternity. The the biblical relationship with God that we are called into, that the scriptures describe, is where God is sovereign And man is responsible to serve him. To serve him as God. And in that biblical understanding of a relationship with God, we can understand hard times that we go through as an opportunity to please him, to trust him in his sovereignty. But do you see how the enemy destroys our faith through that? Challenging the idea, is God really good in this situation? Is he really great in this situation? When our faith starts to wane, we start to ask ourselves, am I really comfortable with this whole idea of the sovereign God over this situation? If we don't have a a correct understanding of who he is, We can think, where is God? He's supposed to keep these things away from me. He's falling down on the job. How do we look to God with humility? How do you do that? Well, we're told here it's by entrusting your fears to him. See, he uses a participle here. And he's saying how we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. It's by casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. As Wayne Grudem says, casting all your anxieties on him is the path to humility, freeing a person from constant concern for himself and enabling God and enabling him or her to be truly concerned for the needs of of others. To cast here means to throw onto someone. Okay? And it's the tense here is once for all, having deposited it on that person once for all, a direct committing to God of all that would give us concern. 
As Warren Wiersbe writes, we must once for all give all of our cares, past, present, and future, to the Lord. We must not hand them over to him piecemeal, keeping those cares that we think we can handle ourselves. If we keep the little cares for ourselves, they will soon become big problems. Each time a new burden arises, we must by faith remind the Lord and ourselves that we have already turned them over to him. Imagine yourself coming to a big like banquet or a big a big uh, party, okay, at at a rich person's home, and there at the front door as you enter in is his butler, and he's got his arms out like this, and the expectation is that you're going to take your big heavy winter coat off and you're going to cast it onto his arms and enter into that party and enjoy yourself. Well, imagine if if the host comes, you know, walking around greeting people and he finds you sitting there and you've taken your winter coat back and you're bundled up with it and you're sweating. And he's like, you gave your coat to my servant. Why are you wearing it again? You're like, but it's cold outside. What if your furnace goes out? He's saying, I think you can trust me. I think you can trust the situation. I got it. That's the idea here, that even as the intensity turns up, even as maybe even the situation gets worse, he's saying, don't take it back. Trust me. We're called to once for all throw our anxieties on God and enjoy his presence. This is not foreign to me, folks. You know, Kelly has to call, tell me on a somewhat regular basis, you just need to calm down. I need to cast my cares back on the Lord and not take them back. As James Seward writes in his poem, His Will, it is His will that I should cast my care on Him each day. He also bids me not to cast my confidence away. But oh, how foolishly I act. When taken unaware, I cast away my confidence and carry all my care. You know, folks, there's a couple ways you can ride a roller coaster. All right? You can throw your hands up and just enjoy it and be like, nobody's died on this yet. Or... Even though nobody's died on it yet, you can grab anything you can get a hold of, straining your muscles as you're going around each bend and curve and twist, you know, clinging to it for dear life. And the difference is trusting. You know, trusting the restraints, trusting the engineer, trusting the owner. And I thought about this roller coaster idea when I read what Wayne Grudem said. He said, among other things, we will, uh, this will involve, this trusting the Lord will involve bowing to God's wisdom, accepting the twists and turns of his providence, and entrusting all our concerns to him. Obeying God and throwing off our concerns on him is how we humble ourselves under him. This is particularly called for during tough times. When we want to just circle the wagons, and let's, it's, let's just worry about what's in-house. We have no right to declare martial law and obey and disobey what we've been told. 
you know, a couple of sayings about anxiety. One is that the beginning of anxiety is the end of faith. The, in, the beginning of anxiety is the end of faith. And the beginning of true faith is the end of anxiety. It's no wonder that the answer to our present battle is standing firm in our faith. So be on the lookout with faith. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We've seen this statement before, be sober-minded. And we know that it means to be clear-headed, to be right-thinking regarding God, regarding his involvement, his ability in the situation. He is always good. He is always great. And in being clear-minded keeps those things in mind. We're also called be watchful. This is the same word that Jesus uses several times in Matthew 26. And we see Peter here dipping back into his scars. Dipping back into his testimony. When Jesus takes Peter and James and John and he takes them into the garden with them before he's arrested. And he tells them, you three stay here and pray and be watchful while I go over here and pray. And each time he comes back and he finds them asleep, he says, be watchful, be watchful. I think Peter is, is reaching back into that moment. And he's saying, I know what I'm talking about. Be watchful. One writer says the opposite of this sober watchfulness is a kind of spiritual drowsiness in which one sees and responds to situations no differently than unbelievers. And God's perspective on each event is seldom if ever considered. That's not watchfulness. Part of this is we should take the devil seriously. That's where he goes here. Where he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. When we're walking with God in obedience, the devil is all roar and no bite. Okay? He is all roar and no bite. He's limited unless we decide he's harmless and we cozy up to him. And that's what what we do when we play with temptation, when we choose to sin. And he devours. This term devour, it means to swallow something up entirely. To consume it completely. The devil's intention, his practice, is to completely consume and destroy people. Imagine that you're, I've never been on one of these, but you're on this one of these safari tours. And you're going through a lion preserve. 
okay? And, and there, right outside of this, this huge Jeep that you're on, is, is a lion, just kind of pacing back and forth. And you're inside here, and, and there's, there's railings around it, and they've put too many tourists on there with you. You know, you're the only one that should be on there, right? Uh, and, and you're getting elbowed, and you're getting squeezed, and you're, it's hot, and, and there's not enough air movement. And you start to think, why am I putting up with this? If I just climb over this railing, there's all this space out there. A wide open field. All I got to do is climb out of this Jeep. How stupid would that be? Right? You're going to find yourself all by yourself except for one other animal, which makes a big difference. That's just as crazy as thinking that when we're uncomfortable, when we're pressed, when we're, we're getting e elbowed, in that, in that circumstance, that, that struggle that we are in, that all I need to do is just jump over God's hedge here. All I need to do is climb over God's boundary, His commands. My, my fulfillment, my satisfaction is just right outside there. Well, guess who was out there too? That's what it looks like when we disobey to find relief. And we find ourselves right in the devil's domain. And he does not stop until people are devoured, swallowed up, and consumed completely. Thank God for grace. Be on the lookout and stand firm in faith. We're told resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We're called to resist the devil with firm faith, counteracting anxiety over our tough circumstances. This idea of resisting, this is a defensive position. Hold your position. Withstand his attack. Stand firm in your faith. Our action is to trust that God is at work. God's reinforcements are always coming. And we're to take comfort in the fact that this is a part of the normal Christian life. Peter is, is comforting them that the same kind of suffering is going on all over the Roman Empire by Christians. The problem is if we have a man-centered theology. Okay? And I don't know if you've caught on to this. But, but this is uh, one aspect of common evangelical Christianity that God has called me to correct. I'm not saying I'm alone in this or anything like that. Okay? But, but every form of religion that man creates and has a tendency to sneak into our understanding of God puts man in the middle, man-centered, and God is just one of those things that orbits around him. And what that looks like in our thinking and in, our, in, in, in doctrine is that man is sovereign. And God is there to serve man. God is responsible to man. 
Okay? And so when a person thinks that way, it's no comfort to be told, you know what, the same sort of thing is going on for Christians all over the world. When a person has a man-centered theology, their response is, well, what is God doing then? He's fallen off He's fallen off his job all over the world. Because God has a responsibility to keep us happy and comfortable. Why am I worshiping him if he's not going to keep up his end of the bargain? See, that reveals man-centered theology. Don't feel guilty about it. It's what sin brought into the world. It's what every religion outside of biblical Christianity believes. That the God or the deity or the spirits are all, a, are all a, you can use them to make your world better. God-centered theology, biblical theology, the, the, what God created us to live under, God is sovereign. And we were created to serve him. We have a responsibility to serve him. And it's a comfort knowing that suffering is a normal part of following him. It's the context in which we can glorify him. Our focus should be on obeying God through the challenges. It brings him greater glory when we do so. I appreciated something I read in the biography of John Newton this past week. When John Newton was persecuted by, by people in the Church of England, they were refusing to allow him to be a pastor, to be the pastor that he felt called to be. He was being shunned for what they called emotionalism. He was being shunned for being too passionate about Christ. And you know what he wrote in his, in his journal? He didn't write and say, God, why are you letting this happen to me? He wrote and said, let me be worthy of their accusation. Let me be worthy of their persecution if it be for this. How do these ideas relate? How, how does resisting the devil with faith relate to humbling ourselves Casting our fears on God. Looking to God with humility. The ESV notes say this. Worry is a form of pride. Because it involves taking concerns upon oneself instead of entrusting them to God. Believers can trust God because as their father, he cares for them. He cares for you. He cares for us. Thus we are to humbly look on, to be on the lookout with faith. And we're to resist the devil and his tool of fear. Let me ask you this. How is it that a huge ship, how is it that a huge ship can be out in the middle of the vast ocean full of all of this stuff that just wants to drown it? Right? And, and, and its main thing is just stay above it. I thought about this when I read a poem this week that said, All the water in the world, however hard it tried, could never, never sink a ship unless it got inside. All the hardships of this world might wear you pretty thin, 
but they won't hurt you one least bit unless you let them in. We're called to cast them off, folks. Cast them off onto God's mighty arms. The devil is defeated by our faith in God. And faith in God means casting our fears on him in response to who he is and who he makes us in him, in Christ. Grow in your knowledge of who you are in Christ. Grow in your knowledge, in your faith, in who he is. He is good. He is great. Is it any wonder that Jesus called himself the good shepherd and the great shepherd? Whatever you are going through, he is good enough for the challenge. He keeps your best interest in mind. Whatever you are going through, he is great enough for the challenge. He can handle it. Trust that he is sovereign and he is rightly in control. Trust that you are responsible to him, not the other way around. Come boldly before his throne of grace like he invites you to do to find grace and help in time of need. And that's all times. Lastly, while looking up to God with humility and looking out with faith, be looking ahead with hope. We read, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I think we're going to come back next week to those four things that God promises to do. But the Phillips translation of this verse says, these little troubles, which are really so transitory, are, will, are, are, are winning for us a permanent, glorious, and solid reward out of, all, out of all proportion with our pain. You know, God has a timetable in mind. We are, when he describes us suffering for a little while, he's alluding to the fact that God knows what t- how much time it is. It may not feel like a little while, but what makes it a little while? When it's put in contrast to the eternal glory that he has saved us for. That's what he does here. As the Apostle Paul says about his own sufferings, In 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. All comparison to what? To what we go through on this earth. We've looked at 1 Peter as instructing us about God's grace at work in us. And here we see God called the God of all grace. He's the source of all grace, all love, all faith, all power. And he's described as the one who's called his children. He is the one who's called us by his sovereign power and wisdom. And he's going to keep us for eternity. That's a lot longer than any sufferings here, which in comparison last for a little while. And the sum of all these things is that all loss will soon be made right, and it will be made right 
for all of time. You know, three is not a large number, right? It's not a large number at all. And if you take an even smaller little number and put it up in the right-hand corner, like say you take the number nine, and you put it in that little spot that says three to the ninth power, it's an exponent. Well, you know what three becomes? 19,683 when it's to the power of nine because it's multiplied exponentially. Your small obedience is multiplied by eternal exponential amounts. By the God of all grace who called you into his eternal glory in Christ. Commands that seem small, like cast your anxieties on him and trust him. They seem simple, but they have exponential benefits. They have exponential rewards from the God of all grace who called you into his eternal glory in Christ. Trust him for that. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we trust you.